God created the world. It was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. Kitov, Kitov. It was just how it was intended to be. There was no punishment and there was no pain. But in this perfect world, he had encoded, like a wise programmer, he had encoded automatic responses to sin. He had put in the universe a providential reaction to sin. That providential reaction to sin is called pain or judgment. When I go touch the stove, if I put my hand out to the stove to touch it, I may get angry that God made the universe so that I get a blister when I touch something hot. But in fact, I should be thankful that I hurt before my hand is consumed. Because the pain keeps me from total destruction. Does that make sense? If I didn't feel the surface pain in the nerves of my skin, I, my hand would be completely burned up and destroyed. They tell me that the disease of leprosy is basically the loss of necessary sensation, the loss of the ability to feel the way you should. So that people will put a key in a door and not realize it, they'll twist their finger off. Because they don't feel the proper pressure and pain associated with touch. So when God created the world, it was perfect. It was without pain. It was without judgment. But he had programmed into this universe automatic responses that if his order was ever transgressed, these responses would be there to keep us from consuming ourselves in sin and to turn us back toward God. God's judgment is always redemptive by design. He finished it. He had labored for six days. But on the seventh day, he was done. And the Bible tells us he rested. What does this mean, he rested? Does it mean he took a nap? No. It means he acquiesced. He had made something, it was perfect, it had its own perpetual motion, and he took his hands away. And he said, Kitov, Kitov. So there is a dynamic innate in the ongoing function of the universe that does not require God's incessant personal intervention. He rested. And he gave guidelines to man and woman. More than that, he gave this world to man. Genesis 3 tells us that he put all the works of his hands under man's dominion. He gave him dominion over all the world and over all the creatures of the world. Man has just been given a 90-year lease or how about a 6,000-year lease on the property of God. So in a sense, we can still say the earth and all its fullness belongs to the Lord, but He has given the controlling rights to man. In China, or even in the state of Israel, you cannot anymore buy private property, which is a crying shame. But you cannot 
buy private property. You can procure a 90-year lease. In China, it's probably a 25-year lease. But in Israel, you can procure a 90-year lease. Now, when you've got that 90-year lease, you're probably going to die before that lease is up, and it's legit for you to say, that's my property. But it's also legit for the state of Israel to say, that's my property. But really, who has the controlling rights? You do. You can build on it. You can till it. You can reap from it. They, they don't have those controlling rights. Do you understand? In the same way, the world was always God's, and it will always be God's, but he gave controlling rights to man. So that it is true to say, the earth and all its fullness belong to the Lord, and it is also true to say with King David in Psalms 115, 16, the heavens, the heavens, these are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Now that gift represented an act of God. And one thing God cannot do is deny himself. If God, in his providential wisdom, saw the end from the beginning, but still gave this, this earth to man, and gave man controlling rights, that's an act of God. That's a law of God. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that God subjected all of creation to futility in hope. And since then, all of creation is groaning with birth pangs until now, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. You remember that there was no death when man received the controlling right. But he told them, if you eat of this tree over here, this tree of analytic human knowledge that is built on competitive desire and ambition at Godhood, if you eat from that tree, my relationship with you is going to end and death is going to start reigning. In Romans 8, we're told to be carnally minded is death. That's exactly the same thing as saying, if the day you eat of the tree of knowledge, dying you will die. But to be spiritually minded is life. Prior to them eating, what they walk with God in the spirit of the day, in the cool of the day. Now God's desire was to prove the power and the glory of His love. That's what God was in essence. He was love. And He desired to prove the glory and power of His love through this universe. And so He created this perfect place and His desire was to have a voluntary relationship with man whereby love would mandate man's correct way to reign. Okay, God wants to reign on the earth, but He wants to reign through a voluntary relationship with man. When, because He gives it to man, that represents a risk. And so Paul says in Romans 8, He subjected, he subjected creation to futility, that's us, in hope. He believed that as big a risk as he was taking, he believed that in the end, love was a risk worth taking. And in the end, creation would groan, creation would prevail, but sons of God would also groan and travail. And in the end, love would find a way. Man may have to suffer for millennia under the yoke of deception and sin, but someday they would come to the revelation that love was the most powerful, wonderful, worthy force in the universe. And in that day, 
the glory of the Lord would fill the whole earth. Amen? And his kingdom would know no end. Amen? So he subjected creation to futility in hope. Did man disappoint God? Yes. We know that man broke that voluntary relationship through deception and greed for power. Amen? We know that in Genesis 6, God was sorry that he made man. So, I said God created the universe and then he rested from it. And we've painted a picture of that. One of the things that he created were the laws and principles of the universe. I'm not specifically referring to the Mosaic law, although certainly there is no real contradiction in essence. But when God set the universe in motion, he set in motion natural law, if you will. Paul would later say that the Gentiles who do not know the law do the deeds of the law. That means that we can look at the invisible attributes of God even in the world and we can see the divine Godhead. Amen? There, are, there is a conscience in us and there is a law of right and wrong that is, it's just there. Because God spoke it into existence on the, on, uh, when He created the world. This is the law of justice. Again, I'm not referring specifically to the Mosaic law. I'm referring to the law of justice. This law was put in motion right along with the law of gravity, with the law of light and darkness, with the law of the circuits of how things orbit. All of that was put in motion at the same time. So let's think of the law of, of justice, or the law of compensation as it's been called, that was later interpreted by the law of Moses as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let's think of that as equal to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's what keeps me standing upright. It's what keeps my, my juice in my glass. I quite like the law of gravity. Can anybody imagine what this room would be like if we didn't have the law of gravity right now? I'm afraid we'd all be adrift, so to speak. Amen. So the law of gravity is quite nice. And yet if I violate the law of gravity, I get quite hurt. Would you agree? So if I go up to the cliff over there at Brazos de Dios and I, I violate the law of gravity and I end up splattered and broken in a million pieces or however many pieces at the bottom, because God put the law of gravity in motion, because He spoke it when everything was still good, because it's from God, there is a sense in which I could say, hmm, see how God judged Him. Do you understand? Because I violated the law of God. A law of God's nature, specifically. But is it fair to think of that God personally coming down and judging me? Or is it more the abstraction of justice judging me? So let's try to open our minds to understand judgment in a little bit different terms than we have in the past. Not everything that is so-called the judgment of God is God coming down and personally beating us up because we jumped off the cliff and you know it says you shouldn't do that. I mean, if we jumped off the cliff and we were all intact and God came and broke all of our bones, now that would be a different story. But much of the judgment that we accrue to God, and rightly so, is not coming from His personal will. It's not a personal act of His essence. Does that make sense? Okay, good. 
Just like he rested from the law of gravity, he rested from the law of compensation. All of this is included in the laws of nature that govern the universe. The law of compensation. When God said, in the day that you eat of this tree and you disobey, you will die. In the Hebrew, it's literally dying, you will die. So death will enter the, our lifespan, but the ultimate that is being spoken there is an eternal death. To disobey the laws of God is to incur death. And why did God put these laws there? He didn't want us to become like Lucifer. When Lucifer fell, he never stopped falling. Amen? So God put the guardrail of pain at the edge of hell so that when we felt pain, we would think of the judgment of God and we would pull ourselves away from the flame before we were consumed by the same. So the law of compensation says, it was interpreted later by, um, by physicists as, for every action there is an equal yet opposite reaction. It says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It says that for every violation against God's order, there has to be a penalty paid. Man, for four and a half thousand years, racks up sin after sin after sin after sin. And that debt becomes greater and greater and greater and greater. Now man came he had controlling rights over the earth, right? But he willingly subjected himself to another power. Instead of voluntarily submitting to the power of God, he voluntarily submitted to what? Another power. What was that power? We submitted to Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the intelligence behind all evil, this arch enemy of God. We submitted to him. Hebrews chapter 2.14 says that all of us are held in bondage all our lifetime by Satan through his threat of death. What I want you to see is that Satan is going to abuse God's law of justice. Okay? This is the law of justice right here. Well, not really. Don't read closely. But I want you to just picture this as the law of justice. This is the law that says for every action there is an equal yet opposite reaction. This is, a, this is the, the law that says, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And to pretend that that won't happen is to mock God, because God said that at the beginning of time. This is the law of justice. Okay? Satan, once we came under subjection to him, Satan used this law to hold us in bondage. How did he do so? In more than one way. We came into subjection to him in two ways, through deception. He promised us power. We believed it. It was a lie. Would you agree with that? And then we came into subjection to him in another way. Once we took his, his course, we condemned ourselves by sin. And so then he used his power of deception and the threat that we deserve death. He used those things to keep us fleeing from God. Instead of turning back to God and saying, Oh Lord, help us. Do you understand? He, he, he twisted that and took advantage of our, our guilt. 
of our shame. And He held us in bondage through the fear of death. He said to us, Justice demands that you should die, and after you have died, you will die still in eternal death. So when God would want to come back in and help us, He still has access, but He needs to help us by example. He needs to help us by creating a place where we have the chance to separate from the powers of the enemy just so long as enough to get strong to fight him. We're in a war zone where we're conquered already. And he can't just drop some candy bars and expect us to rise up and be great against the enemy. He's got to actually make a landing spot and create a little fortress, bring us inside its walls, feed us and clean us, and empower us to fight that enemy. Does that make sense? But he gave controlling rights of the earth to us, and we gave so God cannot violate his own word and forcibly get the devil out of the way isn't that what we want please get the devil off my back God cannot violate his own law because he would be violating the law of justice he cannot forcibly take back what he has freely given think about it please do you understand the state of Israel gives a 90-year lease to John Muir here on uh, 25 acres, all right? And they don't like what you're doing with it. But so long as you're consistent with the terms of the lease, they can't come take it away from you. Does that make sense? They say, but this guy's no good. You know, he likes Chevys and we only like Fords. And, you know, he, we got to go take that land away from him. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. You don't have that right. That would be, that would be unfair. Does that make sense? So God cannot forcibly take back the earth when he's already given the controlling rights to man. The heaven, the heavens, the heavens, the heavens, these are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Amen? You made him ruler over all the works of your hands. Made him a little lower than the angels. So again, when God would want to come into relationship with us, he can't. We're too deaf. We're too unbelieving. We're too bound by the fear of death and guilt and shame to find enough courage to even peel ourselves away from more sin. Amen? And he calls to us, Oh, come all day long. I stretched out my hands. Do you understand? He, come unto me. I want to help you. Through the prophets, he calls to us. We don't have the power do you understand? We have to have a separation from, these, from this constant barrage of Satan's control and assault before we can find the strength to overcome it. God wants to help man. But all the kingdoms of this world lie under the control of who? The God of this world is who? The ruler of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not. Amen? Well, our minds are blinded. Our hopes are hopeless. Our strength is gone. And we're just herded like so many cattle down the chute toward more death, driven by the fear of death. So he's using justice to keep us away from God. God would just come in and take us out in his love. Satan says, oh no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You said, 
This has got to be fair. And they sinned, and therefore they're under my dominion of death. Can't do that. Can't do that. You've got to be fair. This has got to be just. He wants to help us. But justice is being held up. The title deed. Oh no, I've got the 90-year lease right here. But I want him. He's mine. I created him. I put all those gifts in him. I gave him the capacity to love. I want him back. I want to throw the forces of hell out of his life and give him a new start. I want to put him back in Eden. And the devil holds up the, the title deed. No, 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 no. You gave him the title deed and he gave it to me. Get back. Get back. That would be unjust. And God cannot deny himself. And it was he himself who spoke those laws of, of justice that the devil is now using. Now we understand why in Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us that when Jesus came, he nailed the law. To the cross. The law of justice that the enemy was using both to intimidate us toward further death in our despair and guilt and discouragement and also to keep God from forcefully intervening. That law of justice, Jesus killed that law on the cross. He nailed that law to the cross. The Bible tells us God is spirit. Amen? The Spirit, who is God, looked on humanity and wanted to love us. Amen? And he said, how can I do this? If I come with 12 legions of angels, I cannot win by brute force what is still unjust ultimately. So how can I do this? I have to become a man. Because man gave the power to the enemy and only man can give the power back to God. So he has to become like us in every way. He has to relinquish all his rights as God. So this God who is spirit came into the flesh and the life of a man. The man was the son of God and fully man. But the spirit that animated that man was God, because there's only one spirit. That which is conceived in Mary, the angel told Joseph, is of the Holy Spirit. Je the Holy Spirit was the father of Jesus. Amen? The first Adam became a living soul, but the second Adam was a man, but he became a life-giving spirit. So this God did not grasp for his rights as God, but emptied himself and became of no reputation, and took on the form of a bond slave, and became obedient to what? The demands of love. Love had to win by no exertion of force. He had to become like us in every way. He had to become the second Adam to do for us what Adam didn't do when he had the chance. So, the Bible tells us that he is born of a woman, born under the law. He had to come under that law, under that canopy of control that the enemy was using. The whole world, picture it, in a dark, dark cloak of, of black control. Amen? 
The enemy is ruling. The enemy is controlling. And the, the, the love of God and the forces of life, they can't get in because he's using justice as the shield. But he comes in in the weakness of a babe. Hid in the very weakness he would later save. He slips in unawares and they don't know he's the forces of darkness, the enemy of our souls, doesn't know what's happened. He doesn't grasp for his rights as God. He's a man of men. He's tempted in every way. He encounters everything that we encounter. Amen. He does not assume his rights as God, but he lets go of all those. So you say, well, when I am tempted, you know, I failed, but Jesus didn't fail because, you know, he was God. No, no, no. No, he let go of all that extra power. Could he have called 12 legions of angels? Yes, but did he? No. Could he have called down fire from heaven to consume that village in Samaria? Yes, but did he? No. He did not accept his rights as God. Amen. But he emptied himself of all of that. He became a man. Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah and says, By his stripes we will be healed, and the Lord God will lay on him the, aff the affliction of us all. I want you to understand that this does not necessitate two personalities or consciousness, consciences in the Godhead, which if it did, would indicate a conflict between these two, which is also impossible. But rather, this represents God laying on him the iniquity of us all. This represents God as the abstraction of his justice that had to be answered to. When God, when someone falls at the bottom of the cliff, does, is that the judgment of God? Yes. In the same way, justice demanded that we should pay for what we had done. And in that sense, because that justice originated with God, Jesus would pay his ransom to justice. He did not pay his ransom to the Father, and he did not pay his ransom to the devil. Who was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself? Those proponents of penal substitutionary atonement will tell you that the Father wanted to kill us, and the Son felt sorry for us, so the Son said, Dad, I know you got an anger problem, Take it out on me, and I'll take the penalty. So the Father beat Jesus to death, and then Jesus let all of us go because the Father had done something unjust. Was the death of Jesus just? The Bible specifically tells us that he submitted to the unjust death on the cross. If it is unjust, categorically, it was not done by God. But we are told it was done by the rulers of this world. Paul says, if the rulers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Jesus outwits the rulers of this world and lets them kill him in order that he may satisfy the demands of justice. Do you understand what's going on here? Justice has an enormous bill that is due and it has your name on it. Every time you've disobeyed God, for every sin in your heart, hell is going to be paid, and there is no way around it. 
Christians are not special people who don't have to suffer consequences for their sin. Hell will be paid for every transgression. That is the law of compensation and justice. What Jesus did is he paid that hell for you. He suffered that hell for you. I'm destined to hell because I have freely chosen to violate the laws of God. I have already leapt from the cliff and I am plummeting toward the bottom, the abyss. God cannot just reach out and grab me by force. That would violate the law of justice that he spoke into existence at creation. Amen? God has got to satisfy his own law. And so we see in a court case, we see justice demanding that we should die. We see the accuser of the brethren, the prosecuting attorney, holding up the law of justice and saying, yes, they're mine. Yes, they deserve hell. And we see what John called the paraclete, which is defense attorney in Greek. We see Jesus, the defense attorney, saying, I'll not only defend them, but I have paid their debt in full. And I did not pay it by abolishing the law, but by fulfilling the law. I was born of a woman born under the law. Could we pay for ourselves? Could we die for our own sins? No, because it's an eye for an eye. It's not a toenail for an eye. You and I our sins make us a blemished sacrifice. So if God says you have sinned, and if the law of justice says you have sinned, and a sacrifice must be paid, we cannot offer ourselves because we, are, we have diminished our value by our sin. Do you understand? We are the blind bull. We are the lame sheep. We are the toenail in place of the eye. Do you understand? But when Jesus comes, this man of men... This one in whom no deceit was found in his mouth and who never sinned, he is of supreme, unblemished, perfect value. And John would say he himself is the propitiation, which literally means satisfaction, of our sins. And not of ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is so good. He is so worthy. His life was so exemplary. His love so unhypocritical, so untainted and pure. His mercy so consistent and selfless. His character so honest that when he dies, he is, his single life is worth all the blemished lives of humanity. All of them. He himself is the satisfaction of our sins, for our sins. And not of ours only, but those of the whole world. So when Jesus comes, he wants to pay the debt so that he can take us, take us out of the dominion of Satan. So does he pay Satan? No. He's more powerful than the devil. Amen? But Satan is using justice, so he pays it to justice. He disarms justice. He nails justice to the cross. He says, justice, here is where you are paid. When the nails go into my hands unjustly, here is where you are satisfied. Right here. 
And in so doing, does he destroy justice? No. He satisfies justice in himself. He fulfills in himself the requirements of justice. Now, does he then conquer the world and abolish sin? That will come when the Son delivers up the kingdom to the Father. Amen? But is that what's happened right now? No. What does he do? He says, wherever my blood has spilt, that is a place where justice is already satisfied. So all the kingdoms of this world are still under the control of the evil one. And all the deaths from Abel until the present in some way can be considered just because we are tainted, we are sinful, we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Do you understand? But Jesus' death is unjust. So how does he disarm Satan? Well, when Satan kills Jesus, he has no rightful claim on Jesus. Does he have a rightful claim over all of our lives? Yes. Outside of Christ, he has a rightful claim because we invited him in. We made him the God of this world. We made him the ruler of this world. But Jesus did not sin, so he did not give Satan his title deed. So when Satan puts Jesus to death, he undermines his claim on earth in that place. And that's what God was always after. Establishing an embassy of heaven on earth where people could run for refuge and find strength and power and victory over the enemy of their souls. So he would say, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? He didn't come to conquer the world. He said, I do not pray for the world, but for those you will give me out of the world. He stood before Pilate and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But he told the disciples, most assuredly you will not taste death until after the kingdom of God has come on earth with power. So that kingdom comes where the blood is shed. He dies, he sheds his blood on the foundation of a new kingdom. Amen? And he says, if you want to find exit from this world under darkness, where you have no hope, where you cannot get out, then you come into me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come inside of me. And he is the elevator shaft of light that joins earth back to heaven and gives us escape. Now, when Jesus, when he frees us from the obligations of justice, does he just take off our chains and let us go? No, when he stands in the court and says, I have already paid for them, they can be mine. It is up to us. He has already said he would accept whosoever will. But when we are loosed from the chains of death, we are transferred into the custody of Christ. We are not free to be our own men anymore. The Bible categorically states you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We are bond slaves of Christ, as Paul said. So when Jesus stands up in the courtroom where the prosecutor, the enemy of our souls, the, 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 the uh, accuser of the brethren is holding up the title deed and saying, Your honorable Lord, justice, these men must die. 
And Jesus stands up and says, If he will come under submission to me, I will satisfy his requirements. Amen? That's the condition of our release. We have to come into him. We have to come inside of him. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are who do whatever they want now. Is that what it says? There's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do whatever they want without consequence. Is that what it says? No, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, comma, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when the devil unjustly killed Jesus and Jesus rose up because the enemy had no hold on him, amen, and he rose up, amen, in resurrection, what does it say? When he ascended, he led captivity as his captive. He took the very fear of death that was our chains and he put that chain in chains. And he led a host of captives in his train. We were free because those things that had held us back Amen. That guilt. Amen. That abuse of justice. It was gone. Amen. And we saw that death could be triumphed over. Amen. So we are not freed to go back into the world. Whomever you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. Sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So Jesus is the only just man. And he's resurrected. And now he has his corporate body. But he's the only one who has exiting powers from the dominion of this world. That's why, in order to be legally saved, we have to be him. We cannot be us anymore. Because you and I are on the blacklist. Our sin put us on the no-fly list. Our sin put us on the no-fly list. When we would leave the dominion of darkness and get into heaven, we're on the no-fly list. We can't get out. That's why we've got to die. And our life has got to be hid with God in Christ. That's why as many as have died with Him have the chance to be resurrected with Him, to fly out, to be freed. As many of us as have been baptized into Christ, he says in Romans 6, we have been baptized into His death. We have been united with Him in His death. Our sins required judgment. And His cross was that judgment. His cross was that curse, that hell that our sins needed. It says, cursed is He that hangs upon a tree. He took that curse on Himself. He took hell for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. Amen. So when we say, Lord... I'm no longer my old man. Amen. That old man that has no, whose passport is on the blacklist. I'm losing my name. I'm losing my ways. I'm losing my associations and friendships. I'm losing everything that makes me me. And I'm hiding my life in you. Amen. And we say, Lord, take this old identity. Take this old me that is destined for hell and bury it under your blood. What do we do? We put ourselves under the curse. Do you understand? Cursed is he that hangs upon a tree. And when we're baptized, we're united with that death, that curse. Now, if we take ourselves back out from under that curse and begin to live in our old dead man, 
We are cursed while living. We are in hell while yet living. But if we keep that old man dead, amen, and we walk in newness of life, ever seeking to give up more and more of that old dead man and let it fall under the blood, amen, then even as we live, we walk and live in heavenly places. We have been made to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. Amen. And when we get to the portals, when we get to the gates of hell, the gates that we have to pass through in order to get to heaven, we don't show our passport. We show the face, the identity, the spirit, the body, the voice of Jesus. That's why we have to be immersed in His name because He is the only saved man and He will be the only saved man for all time and eternity. Do you understand? He is the only justified man. He's the only sinless man. When we get to the gates, they're not going to see us. They're going to see Jesus. Amen. And when they see Him, they will fall before Him. Amen. They will... The way will be open. The sea will part. The heavens will open. Amen. And he will lead a host of captives in his train. Amen. He ever leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, diffusing through us the aroma of life in the world. Amen. We're, we're prisoners of Christ. We are not free on our own recognizance. We are free under the jurisdiction and lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we're saved. So he says, repent. That means renounce your old claims. Your, own, your, your rights as God. Renounce that old man. Repent and let every one of you be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Remission of sins corresponds to removal of identity. If your picture is all over the post offices and you're on the most wanted, you're going to try to change your identity. But in Jesus, you change everything about you that hell has a hold on. And you put all of that under the, the penalty that He paid on the cross. And you find flight. Amen. As a new man in the likeness of Christ. Amen resurrected with him hallelujah praise you jesus thank you god